We're going to pick back up in the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 2. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Our text this morning is going to be verses 6 and 7, and that's on page 984 if you're using one of the blue Bibles we provide under the seats. And we're only going to look at these two verses, just two verses this morning. But these two verses mark a significant turning point in Paul's letter to the Colossians. So we really need to consider them carefully before we go any further. We really need to take some time to camp out on these two verses. As a recap, so far in this letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians, the Colossian Christians, Paul has praised God for their salvation through faith in Christ. He has expanded their understanding regarding the supremacy of Christ. And he has explained to them his ministry in the gospel of Christ, which has as its goal their complete maturity in Christ. And now, now we've come to the point in his letter where he gives to them his first exhortation, his first command. You'll notice that he hasn't given any commands yet. This is the first one, starting in verse 6. But for context, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now notice that verse 6 begins with the word, therefore. Usually when we're studying our Bible, we like to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? That's a good reminder of we need to understand the context. So we need to see that what he's saying now, what he's about to say, and what he says in verses 6 and 7, comes as a result of what he has just said. And in the preceding verses, Paul told the Colossians that through knowing Christ, they had access to everything they needed to know for life and godliness. Through Christ, they had access to everything they needed to know for life and godliness. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are stored up in Christ, he said. And he explained this to them so that they would understand that they did not need spiritual gurus to enlighten them. Remember the context of this letter, right? He's going to address this, this situation going on in their area, these false teachers. We're trying to tell them they need to supplement this, this faith in Christ, but you've got to do more to be more spiritual, to be closer to God. And so Paul reminds them that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. They have everything they need through faith in him. They don't need 
spiritual gurus to enlighten them. They don't need some elite group of religious zealots to show them how to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, as if the key was to be found in their man-made traditions and disciplines and rituals. And in verse 5, we see that up to the point in time that Paul had written this letter, the Colossians were remaining firm in their faith in Christ. That's what verse 5 shows us. He's saying, I am with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing that you are firm in your faith. You're standing firm. You're holding the line in Christ. So though there was some confusion likely generated among them by the strain of false teaching that was working its influence in their area, they had not been led astray. So you notice the tone's a little different, too. If you read Galatians, well, they started being led astray. They started buying into the fact that, oh, we need to, we need to basically become Jews to be in Christ. We need to get circumcised. And his tone is very harsh. He rebukes them. But the Colossians, not. He doesn't do that. There might have been some confusion he wants to clear up, but he wants to build up their defenses so that they won't be led into error. And then we see in verse 5 that Paul rejoiced because of their perseverance in the faith. They'd been persevering in the faith. They were holding the line against the false teaching. However, the spiritual battle was far from over for them. So Paul urged them to press on, press on. Therefore, he says, starting in verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. I mean, you've been persevering in the faith. Now, therefore, as you have received him, so, and this is in the present tense, keep walking in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the turning point in Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he, he begins to layer in his, his exhortations to them. And this one is the first of those exhortations. However, I wouldn't say that this exhortation is simply the first among many to follow. It's not just the first among many equal ones to follow. I would say that this exhortation, keep walking in Christ, is the summation of all the ones that follow in this letter. It sums it all up. In addition to this, I would say that this is the focal point of Paul's letter, these verses right here. The point that the whole first part of the letter has been building up to, and the point from which the rest of his letter flows, this is it, verses 6 and 7, this exhortation. In the same way that the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind is the greatest commandment in the law of God, next to which is the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, and in the same way that all of the Old Testament hangs upon these two commandments, as our Lord said. So one could say that the greatest commandment in Colossians, upon which all of Paul's instruction and exhortation hangs, is this command, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so keep walking in him. You really need to understand these verses to understand the whole letter. So how did the Colossians receive Christ Jesus the Lord? I mean, we need to understand that. As you receive him, so keep walking in him. How did they receive him? There are two ways in which we'll answer this question. We'll first consider the means 
by which they received Christ. And then we're going to consider the manner in which they received him. So first we'll ask, well, what was the means by which they received Christ? Well, if we turn back to chapter 1, we see in the opening of Paul's letter, well, we see that they, one, they heard the word of truth, the gospel. Two, they, and that was in chapter 1, verse 5. And in verse 6, he says, they understood the grace of God in truth. That is, the grace of God as it truly is. And we see in verse 3 there that the result was that their faith was in Christ. They had placed their faith in Christ. They believed on him. So in other words, the Colossians received Christ by believing the apostolic message concerning him as the truth and placing their faith in Christ. You see, we don't start with they received him by just placing their faith in him. No, they, they heard and understood the truth concerning him. And based upon that objective truth, they place their faith in Christ. They believe the apostolic message concerning him as the truth. They place their faith in Christ, not just in his redemptive work on their behalf, but in him, in him. They received him by faith, by believing the apostolic message concerning him as the truth. That's the only way you can truly receive Christ. First of all, it's important to note that the difference between superficial faith and saving faith, between intellectual belief and wholehearted belief. The former is relegated to the mind. It's, it's all up here. Whereas the latter, wholehearted belief, saving faith, involves both the mind, but not only the mind, it involves the will. It involves the will. It's the, it's the whole person. And this may seem like a, a small distinction, uh, but it really is It's what sets apart superficial belief from saving belief. We can't miss that. You know, when I accept the message concerning Christ as true, just I accept it as true, there can still be room in my mind for exceptions. Perhaps he's Lord and Savior for now. Perhaps he's Lord and Savior with regard to most areas in my life. Or perhaps he's Lord and Savior, well, as long as he doesn't offend me. Or as long as submitting to him doesn't cause me any problems. So when I merely accept the message concerning Christ as true, there's a sense in which it remains optional for me. It's my choice. I choose Jesus. It's my choice. I accept it as true. It seems to be it remains optional. It's true as long as I accept it as being true. And therefore, I ultimately remain, in my thinking, the authority in my life. It's true because I accept it as true. I'm in control still. I'm going to pick and choose what really is authoritative, that I'm going to deem authoritative because I'm really the authority. However, 
If I believe the message concerning Christ is the truth, it's no longer optional. There aren't exceptions. I come to recognize it as authoritative over me. And in light of this, I submit to it. If I believe it is the truth, then it remains the truth regardless of my feelings. It remains the truth regardless of my reasoning. It remains the truth regardless of my preferences, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my experiences. It, it, it is the truth. It is authoritative. And I'm called to yield my life to it. There's no power in merely accepting the message concerning Christ as true, but there's power in believing it is the truth. The latter will shape your life. It will change your life. We're talking about real conviction here, true confidence, genuine faith, trust that directs our thoughts and our actions. It binds us, it controls us, it captivates us. Saving faith is, is not something you can muster up or manufacture, by the way. So this isn't, uh, let's make this distinction now. Believe harder, really believe. Mm. It's, we're, we're making a distinction here between this accepting Christ, this is my choice, I accept it as true, and saving faith. Well, I can't manufacture that. Where does that come from? Well, Scripture says it is a gift from God. To come to a point as believing the message concerning, uh, concerning the truth about Christ, to believe that that is the truth, that is a gift from God to get to that point. It's something that results from the Spirit of God giving you spiritual life, opening your eyes so that you might truly understand the gospel and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit giving you a new heart so that you might believe on Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. This is the new birth. Our Lord said, one cannot enter the kingdom of God unless what? Unless he's born again. And this is the work of the Spirit of God. This is how the Colossians received Christ. This is how they received him. They heard the gospel, and by God's gracious work through the Holy Spirit, they had come to truly understand the gift of God's saving grace towards sinners, offered through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they believed this message to be the truth. And so they repented, and they placed their, their faith in Christ. And the immediate fruit of their faith that proved it to be genuine was, as we see in the beginning of Paul's letter, it was their spirit-born love for all those who belonged to Christ, their love for all the saints. That was the evidence that they had truly been born again and they had saving faith in Christ. There's fruit to saving faith. Anyone could say, I believe, oh, Jesus is my Savior, but it's the life transformed. It's the, it's the, the immediate fruit of love for Christ's people, love for the church, evidence. 
Now we've considered the means. That was the means, right? There's content to their faith. They believe the message is the truth. That's the means by which the Colossians received Christ. Now let's consider the manner in which they received him, which is revealed in the phrase, Christ Jesus the Lord. We might just read that and say, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Lord Jesus. You know, it's just a combination. This is actually a unique ordering of these words. Actually, only in this particular way found in Colossians. We see the manner in which they receive Christ by that phrase, Christ Jesus the Lord, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, most of the time, the word Lord appears after Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Most of the time that it does appear after Christ's name, it is followed by a personal possessive pronoun. So it is Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, my Lord, your Lord, our Lord. Personal possessive pronoun. So Lord is qualified, but our Lord, my Lord. In these instances, the word Lord is used to refer to Christ's exalted position. He is our, that is the church's, Lord, both on an individual level and on a corporate level. He is our master. He is our authority. He is our head. He is our ruler. That's the, the exalted position of Christ. However, there's no personal possessive pronoun in Colossians 2.6. In this case, the word Lord is not pointing us to Christ's exalted position, but to his exalted identity and nature, which in turn shows us just how lofty his exalted position is. He is the one true God, whose unique divine name is translated throughout the scriptures as the Lord. And you'll see in your Bibles, all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. The divine name of God is translated into that word. So how can this be? Jesus is the one true God. He is the, the, the Lord, our God. When the scriptures, God has revealed that he the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, eternally exists as three persons in one essence. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Jesus, the Christ, is the second person in the being of God. So he is God, the Son. And therefore, he is the Lord, all caps, Lord, our God. If we look at, at the Psalms, we'll see the, the use of the word Lord and see how it not only refers to the exalted position of authority and rulership, but also to the divine name itself. Psalm 8, the first verse says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you see that? Well, unfortunately, the uh, program here doesn't show you that the, the first Lord is actually in your Bible translations. It's going to be all caps. And sometimes, maybe, maybe growing up, you think, like, isn't that kind of redundant? Oh, Lord, our Lord. 
right? But that really is saying, oh, and we've talked about this before, the divine name, some would say, you know, you could pronounce it as Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, our master, our sovereign. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Well, guess what? Christ dwelled in this glory before the world began and before he came into the world. He dwelled in that glory. And he dwells in it now, having ascended into heaven and taken taking his seat at the right hand of the Father. So Psalm 8 is very well speaking of him. Psalm 135, 5 through 7, For I know that the all caps, Lord, that the Lord is great, and that our Lord, our Master, is above all gods. God's little g, the imaginations of men. Whatever the Lord, Yahweh, pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Well, this is very well speaking of Christ, is it not? He's also the one who calms the storms as Christ did in the very presence of his disciples. He is the Lord. This is who Christ Jesus is, the Lord. He is God the Son. This is the one whom the Colossians received. They received him as the Lord, God Almighty, who is not only the Lord of his church, but Lord of all creation. He is the one whom Paul said earlier in this letter is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom and through whom and for whom all things exist, the one who is before all things and sustains all things, and the one through whom all things will be reconciled. So Christ should not just be elevated in your estimation. He should be supreme. He is the Lord. Do not just believe on Jesus as Israel's promised Messiah, the heir to the throne of David who will restore the kingdom of Israel and reign over the earth. Do not just believe on Jesus as the Lamb of God who suffered and died to redeem sinners. Don't just believe on Jesus as the Savior who reconciles sinners to God and delivers them from the wrath of God and eternal hell. Don't just believe on Jesus as the great high priest who offered to God the perfect and eternally satisfying sacrifice for sins and makes intercession for his people. Don't just believe on Jesus as the Son of God who came down from heaven and revealed the Father. Believe on Jesus as the Lord. He's all of these things. He is the Lord our God. And because he is God, he is not the means to an end. He is the end himself. He's not merely the threshold we pass through to pass from death to life and to ultimately enter into the glory of the kingdom of God. He himself is the resurrection and the life. He himself 
is the glory of the coming kingdom of God. We come to him. We don't go through him. We come to him. He is the Lord. He is God the Son, the exalted one. Is this how you received him? Is this how you received him? God the Son, the exalted one, the supreme one, the king of kings, the head of the church, the one whose name is above every name, this is Jesus, the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, the one who is one with the Father, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of heaven, Jesus is the one in whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. Did you receive him this way? Jesus is the one who, as it says in the book of Hebrews, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the Lord. Is that how you received him? That's how the Colossians received him. So therefore, as you received him, as the Lord, as he is, Paul says in verse 6, keep walking in him. Keep walking in him. Continue believing on him as he truly is, the Lord, in accordance with the apostolic message through which he was proclaimed and made known to you. In accordance with the scriptures, keep believing on him as the Lord and keep your eyes fixed on him as the one who is supreme in everything and who is all-sufficient for life and godliness. I would say this is a good defense against those who would seek to persuade you that faith in Christ is not enough and that rituals and regulations are, are needed if you, if you want to be close to God. Well, if he is the Lord and you are in him, and he is God. What can the rituals and regulations do to bring you closer to God? You have come and beheld him. You have seen his glory in his face, in the face of Christ. So when you don't think much of Christ, then you're susceptible to being led astray by false teaching. When you don't think much of him, that opens all kinds of doors to lead you into error. You're susceptible, when you don't think much of Christ, to being persuaded to embrace beliefs and practices that, that don't align with Christ, that don't align with his teaching, and that don't align with the scriptures, which are his word. You are susceptible, when you don't think much of Christ, to being persuaded to embrace beliefs and practices that have no real power and that undermine the very truth of the gospel. You see, how you think of Jesus determines whether or not you are susceptible to being deceived, determines whether or not you are susceptible to drifting from the very gospel that you had professed to believe. Take Jesus out of the equation. There's no gospel at all. Leave him in the equation, but diminish him. It's no gospel at all. So this is why Paul exhorted the Colossians, as you received him, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep walking in him. He didn't say, 
You received him. That's all you need. You signed the card, right, brother? You got baptized. We have the video. You gave the testimony. Yeah, just keep looking back on that. Tell yourself you're secure. Tell yourself that you're his. No, Paul says, as you received him, keep walking in him. Right? What did he say earlier in the letter? We'll present it, be presented holy and blameless before God if we what? If we continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel. If you don't continue, then that proves that you are never in Christ. You've been baptized at Summit. It's a glorious ceremony, glorious picture of spiritual reality of those who have died to themselves, their sin and been risen to new life in Christ, who placed their faith in him. If you recall that, just remember that this text, this is for you. This is for all of us. Keep walking in him. And in verse 7, Paul clarified what he meant when he said keep walking in Christ. He writes this, rooted and built up in him. Keep walking in Christ, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So in the first part of this verse, we have a basic summary of what it means to be walking in Christ. What does that mean? Keep walking in Christ. All right. What does that mean? Well, he says, rooted and built up in him. The word rooted is in the perfect tense. Yay, grammar. Here's what that means. It's in the perfect tense. That means it's, it's focused on a present state resulting from a past action. So the past action in this case being the Colossians' salvation, at which point God placed them in Christ. The Father, by means of the Spirit, firmly rooted them in the Son, and they remained in this state of being rooted in him. So, they were rooted and they have continued being rooted. So, being rooted. Having been rooted and continuing being rooted. They're in this state of being rooted in Christ. And Paul then uses the phrase built up. Right? So, rooted in him, built up in him. Rooted and built up in him. And the phrase built up, this is in... The present tense, so its focus is on a present continuous action. In this case, the action of being built up in Christ, being built up in him. And this is alluding to the goal of our salvation. What's that? It's maturity in Christ, that we would grow up in him, unto him, that we would be conformed to his image. That's the goal of your salvation. So walking in Christ is summed up by Paul as, one, remaining rooted in Christ, and two, being built up in Christ. Now notice that these two aspects of walking in Christ are they're passive. They're in a passive voice. Again, grammar is helpful. They're in the passive voice. Rooted, being built up. In other words, the action is being done to me, not by me. Do you see that? So in this case, who's the subject? It's God. 
God is the subject. He's the one doing the action. He's the one who keeps us rooted in Christ. And he's the one who builds us up in Christ. So what exactly were the Colossians to do? I mean, if this is how walking in Christ is summed up, what exactly are we to do? Keep walking in Christ with these things that basically God's doing. How do I, what do I do? How do we go about remaining in our state of being rooted in Christ? How do we go about doing that? How, do we, uh, how are we to go about being built up in Christ? How do, we, how do we do that? The basic answer to both questions is this. Here's how we do it. By continuing to believe and submit to and grow in our understanding of the scriptures, which are his word. Remember Paul's prayer for the Colossians in chapter 1? Do you remember it? It's okay. It was like months ago. His desire was to see them walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Oh, that's my prayer for you, Colossians. I want to see you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But did he just pray? So I pray, God, make them walk in a manner worthy of you. He prayed and he kept praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, he kept praying that they would be filled with God's word so that they might walk in a manner worthy of Christ. So we remain rooted in Christ by means of the scriptures. Here's where we see the New Testament teaching this. In John's epistles, 1 John 2.24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you, too, will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then in John's second letter, verse 9, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Because Christ is God. You don't abide in his teaching. You've departed from God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Remember that Paul said, as we mentioned earlier in his letter, that our being presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God in the end was contingent upon us continuing in the faith and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, the objective truth, the word of God. And being built up in Christ, here's how we continue being built up in Christ by means of the scriptures. Ephesians 4 is a great passage to look at, 11 through 15, verses 11 through 15. It says, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So the apostles and prophets were those who held this office in the first century to establish the foundation for Christ's church and the continuing office of evangelists, and that's really pastor-teachers. That's continued on for the building up of his church. So he's given them to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And ministry, by the way, is not just loving and serving one another. We look at the one another commands. It's also teaching, admonishing, and exhorting one another. So to equip the saints for the work of ministry with the word, to equip them for the building up, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the means? It's the scriptures. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. Where does that come from? The scriptures. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. In other words, we're to be equipped in the word so that we may minister to one another with the word and in accordance with the word and thus grow up in every way into Christ, be built up in him. So we've seen the essence of what it means to keep walking in Christ. It is to remain rooted in him and to continue being built up in him by means of his word. The phrase in him is key, by the way. We're not talking about mere Bible knowledge, but about knowledge of the Son of God. Personal, relational knowledge, factual knowledge of the Son of God. Christ must be the focal point. Christ must be the goal of our learning. If he's not central, then no amount of Bible knowledge will keep you from being deluded with plausible arguments. If he's not central, then no amount of Bible knowledge will keep you from being, as Paul says in verse 8, taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. You see, you don't, you don't need to add to Christ. You need to grow in Christ. There's no grace or spiritual power or wisdom outside of him. The means is his word. The, the focus and the goal is him as we grow in his word. A lot of people who have a very good knowledge of the Bible. Hey, how about the Pharisees, right? Great Bible scholars. Oh, they memorized so much, they knew the scriptures so well, and they missed the one to whom the scriptures pointed. The one who was at the center of it all, Christ. They missed it. So all their learning was in vain. Now Paul says, keep walking in Christ, remaining rooted and built up and being built up in him. And he says, and established in the faith. And what he's doing here is he's not adding another element of walking in Christ, but he's rather indicating a result that comes from remaining rooted and being built up in Christ. It's a result. It should be understood this way. Keep walking in Christ, remaining rooted and being built up in him, and so being established or strengthened in the faith. As a result of being rooted and built up in him, being strengthened in the faith, established in the faith. And the faith, that term refers not to our belief. It refers to the content of our belief. It refers to the Christian faith. That is, Christian truth, which is contained in and defined by the scriptures and nothing more. What do all the cults have? All the Christian cults, well, we believe the Bible not ours, but they also have other material. 
to supplement and reinterpret the whole thing. We're talking about the Christian faith, which is contained in and defined by the scriptures alone. The more you remain rooted in and are being built up in Christ by means of the scriptures, the more you will be strengthened in the truth of scripture, the more you will be strengthened in the faith. Paul says, keep walking in Christ, remaining rooted and being built up in him and being and so being established in the faith just as you were taught, just as you were taught. The fact that Paul said, just as you were taught, indicates that what he was telling the Colossians to do was not new. What he's telling them here is not new. What they had learned up to the point of Paul writing them this letter, they had learned primarily from who? Epaphras, the one who brought the gospel to them. And Paul seems to be affirming here that they had originally received from Epaphras the instruction to keep walking in Christ. And I would say, just as you were taught, applies to that whole statement. Keep walking in him, remaining rooted in him, and continually being built up in him and so established in the faith, just as you were taught. You were taught this. So Paul's affirming that. It's nothing new. It's a reminder that the teachers who are worth listening to, for us. The teachers who are worth listening to are those whose teaching is faithfully consistent with Scripture and whose primary focus is the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ Jesus the Lord. You don't need to look for something new, something cutting edge in teaching. You want the faithful faithful, consistent teaching of the Word of God, which is focused on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ Jesus, the Lord. That's what we want. We want an ordinary church. We want a church that just teach, tell, preach the Scriptures. Let me encounter God by coming before His Word and hearing it explained and proclaimed with Christ as the central focus of it all. He is the Lord. That's what we need. Finally, finally. At the end of verse 7, what does he say? We, we see that what is to accompany, we see what is to accompany our walking in Christ. What's to accompany it? A continual abundance of thanksgiving. Not the holiday. The giving of thanks. But we love the holiday because this is, this is a, a marker of the Christian faith. This is the giving of thanks. The word abounding is in the active voice. It's active. We get to do something. Remember the previous terms that summed up walking in Christ? Rooted, built up, established. They're all in the passive voice and refer to what the Lord does to us by means of his word. At this point, this passive voice points to the Lord's complete sufficiency for us, in, uh, for life and godliness. And it is a reminder of his continuing grace towards us. So you don't need to add rituals or regulations or any other kind of works that are rooted in the traditions and teachings of men and not in the scriptures. But here's what you can do, Paul says. Continually and abundantly give thanks to the Lord. So you keep walking in him. By means of his word, his word, remain rooted in him, be built up in him, and so you will be as strengthened in the faith And here's what you can do. Give thanks to him. 
It's grace. It's a reminder of all of this as a result of the grace of God made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the wonderful work of salvation that you have accomplished, the newness of life that we have in you, the sufficiency of your work on our behalf, the joy of your continuing grace in our lives. And Lord, we pray, may you by your spirit empower us equip us, guide us through your word, by means of your word, to remain rooted in you, to continue being built up in you. May you be the center of our focus, our aim, our goal. You are the prize, Lord. Cause us to be built up in you, that we might be conformed fully to your likeness, to your image. You are the Lord. Help us to keep you fixed in our minds as the one who is supreme over all and sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. Protect us, Lord. Strengthen us in this way. We have all that we need in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.